You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 60, Anschluss, Part 4, Operation Otto. Top Secret 1. If other measures prove unsuccessful, I intend to invade Austria with armed forces to establish constitutional conditions and to prevent further outrages against the pro-German population. 2. The whole operation will be directed by myself. 3. The forces of the Army and Air Force detailed for this operation must be ready for invasion on March 12, 1938, at the latest of 1,200 hours. 4. The behavior of the troops must give the impression that we do not want to wage war against our Austrian brothers. Therefore, any provocation is to be avoided. If, however, resistance is offered, it must be broken ruthlessly by force of arms. End quote. These were the orders given to the German military for the invasion of Austria, just a few days before the operation was to take place. At army headquarters, frantic preparations would be completed, as orders were drawn up and distributed for an operation that just a few days earlier had never been properly considered or prepared for. The operation would be put under the command of General Freder von Bock and his 8th Army, it would include the usage of the 2nd Panzer Division, which I believe is the first time that a Panzer Division would be used in something close to combat operations. The short time frame was forced upon the German generals by the fact that in Austria, Chancellor Schuschnigg had ordered that a plebiscite would be held on the 13th, a plebiscite that the German leaders felt would not see a favorable result, at least from their perspective. Along with all of the military preparations, political preparations were also being made. Hitler would write a letter to Mussolini on March 11th to fully inform him about what was about to happen, and to make it clear that he had no quarrel with Italy and no ambitions on any Italian territory. In Austria, Sushenig would be officially informed on March 11th at 5.30am, so a day before the Germans planned to invade, that the Germans were preparing for the operation. The information on German plans came from two sources. The first was the Austrian Consul General in Munich, who had sent the message, Leo is ready to travel, which was the prearranged signal to be sent if the German invasion seemed imminent. The other direct indicator of the coming invasion came from the German troops that were massing near the Austrian border, along with their very noticeable troop movements. The third indicator of the possibility of an invasion would be far more direct and would arrive shortly after, when Franz von Papen would fly out of Vienna, bound for Berlin. As Poppen left, a letter was delivered from Hitler that was addressed to the Minister of the Interior, Seissen Court, and the Vice-Chancellor, Edmund Glaced Horsnow, and they were to deliver it to Schuschnigg. Both Seissen Court and Glaced Horsnow were loyal Nazi party members, and their goals were to see the German plans for the absorption of Austria being fulfilled. The letter that they were given was an ultimatum with one simple demand, a two-week postponement of the plebiscite that was scheduled for the 13th. This seems like a simple demand, postponing the vote for a relatively short period of time, but it was both politically and personally difficult for Schuschnigg to agree. He had placed any hopes for his future as Chancellor of Austria, and most of the hopes of navigating Austria away from a union with Germany, on the results of the plebiscite, believing that it would show that the Austrian people were firmly against such a union. During the morning hours, Austrian reservists were mobilized and arms were distributed to the reservists and border guards and the police. These were steps in preparation for a possible military confrontation, but while they were ongoing, discussions were still continuing. 
Chushinig would meet with Sisenkort and Glace Horsnow at 2 p.m. to try and find some other path forward that did not involve postponing the vote. When this proved to be impossible, at 2.30 p.m., news was sent out that the plebiscite was canceled. Sisenkort and Glace Horsnow who were at this point very poorly informed of Germany's actual plans, which were still invasion, believed that when they obtained Schuschnigg's agreement for the postponement, they had achieved a great victory, and all of the problems were now solved. It was with this sense of victory that Seisenkort would telephone Berlin, and specifically Goering, to tell him that Schuschnigg had given in to the demands. What we know of this phone call and its aftermath comes almost completely from Goering's testimony at Nuremberg which is, of course, not completely reliable. But I will just give you his quote from this moment. Quote, At this moment, I had an instinctive feeling that the situation had begun to slide and that here at last was that opportunity, so long and passionately awaited, to bring about a complete and clear-cut solution. And from this time onwards, I must take the responsibility for what now happened 100% on my shoulders. For it was not so much the fearer as myself who sent the, set the pace here and forced things to a decision even against his doubts, end quote. Now, we almost certainly uh, need to consider this portrayal of events as deeply suspect, with Goering probably making himself, you know, a bit bigger in the situation than he maybe was, and maybe gave himself too much credit for steering events. But we do know that Goering would continue to push towards a military invasion of Austria, an outcome that Hitler was certainly in no way against. Roughly 15 minutes after the first phone call, Goering would call Seiss in court and deliver the message that, quote, Berlin cannot accept the decision of Chancellor Schuschnigg's in any form. In view of his breach of the Berchtesgaden Agreement, Schuschnigg no longer enjoys our confidence. The national ministers in Austria are to hand in their resignations at once to the Chancellor and to demand that he resigns as well, end quote. This was then relayed by Seiss in court to Schuschnigg. The new demand was for his resignation and the resignation of his entire government. Schuschnigg would, for the second time that day, choose the path of least resistance, and he would make it known to President Miklos that he was prepared to resign. The problem would be finding someone to replace him. Miklos asked all the likely candidates to, to find one that was ready and willing to take over as the, as the chancellor, but no one was. The hope was to find somebody who could still support Miklos and Schuschnigg's basic desire for the continuation of Austrian independence, but as each hour passed, it seemed more and more unlikely that such a person would be found. The answer would come, once again, in the form of another demand from Berlin. Goering would once again relay a message to Seisenkort that a new demand was being made, and it was that Seisenkort should be placed in the position of Chancellor. The threat for non-compliance with this demand was simply that German troops would invade. This would be delivered to the Austrian cabinet by General Muff, the German military attaché in Vienna. Quote, if by 7.30 p.m. Field Marshal Goering has not received the report that Seisenkort has become chancellor, 200,000 men standing in readiness at the border will march in. Asking for the resignation of a government official who was willing to do so, and demanding that somebody specific be placed in the highest position of the cabinet were two very different requests and Miklos simply refused to make such appointments, and he would continue to refuse under the threat of invasion. During these critical hours, with Schuschnigg still acting as chancellor just out of sheer lack of options, the Austrian government would receive clear messages from other European powers. Italy, France, and Britain were all unwilling to provide meaningful help or assistance. Austria was on its own. The Austrian cabinet was left in an impossible position. 
they could either resist against the Germans, a fight they were certain to lose without massive help from other nations, or they could just accept the inevitable. They would once again choose the path of least resistance, and Schuschnigg would provide a written order to the Austrian forces to withdraw from all border areas and to offer no resistance to German troops if and when they came over the border. All of this was kind of happening behind closed doors, and beyond the reserve mobilization orders, it would not be until 7 p.m. that most of the people in Vienna and Austria would have any real idea what was happening. It was at that time that there was a radio broadcast that announced that the plebiscite was postponed and that the cabinet had resigned. This caused some a good amount of chaos, especially in the border regions close to Germany where Nazi influence was at its strongest. In these areas, local government was taken over and local police and security forces were removed. Then at 7.30pm, rumors very quickly spread around Vienna that the Germans had invaded. This aligns with the previous threats from Goering and this prompted Schuschnigg to make a national radio address. During this address, he would give some details about what was happening. He discussed the events that had occurred. He he made it clear that Austria was yielding to German threats of invasion. He would also inform the nation that he had ordered the Austrian army to withdraw without providing any resistance. This seems like a bit of an odd and very open message, but it was given under the belief that German forces were already in the country and would soon be in control of the capital. In fact, it would not be until 8.45pm that the final order for the invasion would be signed. This order was only given after Seiss and Court had phoned Berlin to inform them of the contents of the speech. At that time, Hitler would sign instruction number 2 for Operation Otto. This stated that the German demands had not been met and so the military was being sent in. A bit after midnight, Miklas finally gave in to the previous demands and placed Seiss and Court in the chancellorship, allowing him to form his own government. Once again, Seisencourt believed that he had achieved a great victory, and he would telephone Berlin to tell them that he was now in control and the invasion was no longer necessary. The message he received in response, after 2.30am, was that the invasion was now unstoppable. The orders had already been distributed and could not be recalled. While those conversations were occurring, there was absolute bedlam on the borders between Austria and Czechoslovakia and Hungary. People were frantically trying to flee the country in the last hours before the invasion. Schuschnigg would refuse to flee, even after several desperate pleas of those around him. Because of his refusal, Schuschnigg would spend the next seven years in various German prisons and concentration camps. The order to not offer any resistance to a German invasion was a fortuitous one for the Wehrmacht. The power of the German forces would have almost certainly have guaranteed victory, but they were far from perfectly prepared. The leading units did not even have maps of the areas they were advancing into, with one officer being provided nothing but a tourist guide. The fuel columns for the leading vehicles were completely improvised and heavily relied on trucks borrowed from along the route and refilling at civilian petrol stations. There were also some problems with the weather, with snow and ice being present on some of the roads which played havoc with some of the tracked vehicles, particularly the older tanks. While they were trying to get out of Germany, A bit under a third of all the tanks had to be left behind due to mechanical issues, and while in Austria a further two-thirds would fall victim to similar problems. But while the advance was slower than expected, perhaps slightly less triumphant, it began and continued while encountering no resistance from Austrian forces. At the front of the invasion was the 2nd Panzer Division, who crossed the border at around 9am on March 12th. Many of the units had traveled hundreds of miles over the previous days to reach their jumping-off points, so some level of delay is perhaps understandable. 
When they reached the borders, the, the barriers were even raised for them. In the air, Luftwaffe planes, hundreds of them, took off from airfields in Germany, primarily in Bavaria, and they would then land in Austrian airfields, at times dropping propaganda leaflets on the way. While many of the early flights were military aircraft prepped at least for the possibility of action, just a few hours later this would change and there would be many direct flights to Vienna to deliver German officials who were assigned the task of getting control of the Austrian government and preparing for the full transition to German control. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Along with the military units that were advancing into Austria, at 4 p.m. they would be joined by Hitler and his entourage in a group of Mercedes vehicles that would cross the bridge at Braunau am Inn. General Heinz Guderian would state that he felt that Hitler was, quote, deeply moved. The tears were running down his cheeks. The only thing that slowed down the convoy were the crowds that gathered as soon as news began to spread that the German Chancellor was in Austria. They would make it to the city of Linz late in the evening where they planned to meet Seisenkort and other Austrian Nazi leaders. Within the city, 100,000 people would come out to greet the convoy. Hitler and the others would be forced to stay in Linz for the entirety of March 13th instead of heading to Vienna as planned. This was because Himmler, who was in charge of security arrangements, simply was not satisfied with arrangements in Vienna. The day would still contain several meetings, as well as a trip to the village of Leonding, where Hitler had spent some time in his youth and where his parents were buried. He would also meet several friends from his school days when he visited the school he attended as a child. The reception that he received in Austria and in his hometown shifted the conversation about the future of Austria. The exact plans for what would happen to Austria, and exactly how independent it would be, were still kind of up in the air when the invasion happened. There were many options from something close to actual independence to far more integrated solutions like Bavaria and Saxony. However, after he entered Austria, and then after the day spent in Linz, the fate of Austria seems to have been sealed in Hitler's mind. It would be fully annexed and made into just another German province. While Hitler was having a bit of fun in Austria, back in Berlin, Goering and Neurath were forced to bear the brunt of criticisms and questions from foreign delegations. Neurath would stick to the story that many Austrians had demanded a new government, and Germany was simply helping them to achieve it. He would also claim that the Wehrmacht was assisting the Austrian government to avoid bloodshed during the period of transition. In general, foreign reaction was muted, 
with many foreign governments and newspapers seeing the Anschluss as something that could not be stopped, especially after the announcements from Vienna that there would be no active resistance to the invasion. Back in Linz, Hitler would finally be able to leave for Vienna at 11 a.m. on the 14th, for what would turn out to be a six-hour trip to the capital through absolutely perfect spring weather. After the hero's welcome that Hitler and his entourage received in other areas of Austria, his arrival in the capital was no different. Or to quote a Daily Telegraph correspondent, quote, To say that the crowds which greeted him along the Ringstrasse were delirious with joy is an understatement. After arriving in the city and making his way through the crowds, Hitler would speak from the Hofburg, which had previously been the imperial palace of the Habsburgs. During the speech, he would announce that Austria would be brought into Germany as a new province known as the Ostmark. There would be two laws drawn up to make this official. The one in Austria was the Law for the Reunification of Austria with the German Reich. It was signed by Seiss and Court in his position as Chancellor, but Miklos refused to sign. This was simply fighting the unbreakable tide, and eventually he would be convinced to declare himself hindered in the exercise of his office, which allowed his power to fall to Seiss and Court, who would then sign the law that made the Union official. With the transition to Germany complete, social changes happened rapidly, and almost immediately, the arrests began, with 76,000 people arrested in Vienna within just a couple of weeks. As with the early arrests in Germany back in 1933, many of these arrests were strictly temporary, but they would still leave their mark. Along with these arrests, there were wholesale purges of the civil service and the military to remove as much power as possible from those who might still wish to officially resist the new reality. There were also far more violent actions taken in the streets, both officially supported and spontaneously. With the Austrian Nazi party now in official control of the government, there was nothing to prevent violence which might have been previously curtailed by the police. There was enough violence, especially against Austrian Jews, that it bordered on being classified as a program. Many were beaten, robbed, and murdered. To quote the New York Times, in Austria overnight, Vienna's 290,000 Jews were made free game for mobs, despoiled of their property, deprived of police protection, ejected from employment, and barred from sources of relief. And all of these actions were before the official persecution began. A new office for Jewish immigration was created, which controlled who could and could not leave the country. As in Germany in earlier years, this group would allow Jewish individuals to leave Austria but only if, and when, they essentially handed over every bit of money and property that they had. It was just an officially licensed extortion, with almost 100,000 Austrians still opting to go through the process out of fear for their life and family. Those that were left behind faced constant threats and abuse. For example, there was a lengthy period of time where Jewish men and women would be forcefully removed from their homes and forced to do cleaning tasks around the city while being surrounded by angry mobs. Unfortunately for all the Austrian Jews, it was only the beginning. There were many international reactions to the events in Austria, as there obviously would be any time a large adjustment in borders in Central Europe was made. While many would mention concerns, there was little chance of any real action or anything beyond just words. With Austria seen as a lost cause, there was far greater concern that other areas were not given the same treatment, especially Czechoslovakia. There was simply no support for any real action outside of a few political leaders and groups here and there. Some level of official response was required, though, and many would officially protest in Berlin, as we discussed earlier. For example, the British cabinet would prepare a response on March 14th, 
and then when Chamberlain would address the Commons later in the day, he would speak extensively about the events. Here are two quotes. The House may desire me to repeat what our position in regard to Austria was. We were under no commitment to take action vis-a-vis Austria, but we were pledged to consultation with the French and Italian governments in the event of actions being taken which affected Austrian independence and integrity, for which provision was made by the relevant articles of the other peace treaties. This was not a moment for hasty decision or for careless words. We must consider the new situation carefully but with cool judgment. I am confident that we shall be supported in asking that no one, whatever his preconceived notions may be, will regard himself as excluded from any extension of the national effort which may be called for. As regards our defense programs, we have already made it clear that they were flexible and that they would have to be reviewed from time to time in the light of any development in the international situation. It would be idle to pretend that recent events do not constitute a change of the kind that we had in mind. Accordingly, we have decided to make a fresh review, and in due course, we shall announce what further steps we may think it necessary to take. End quote. Really, the entire speech given by Chamberlain in front of the Commons, and you can read the full transcripts online, are just mostly just saying, hey, we had no commitments, we're not doing anything, but we'll make sure that we, you know, think about what we're going to do in the future. In Austria, four weeks after German troops moved in, a vote would be held that would solidify the fact that Austria was now simply another German province. A remarkable 99.73% of the vote would be in favor of the shift, with that number of course being heavily influenced by the typical Nazi methods of drumming up the proper voting results. This will obviously be a topic we will discuss in the very far future in a much, much later episode. But I did want to mention a piece of the Declaration of Independence of the Second Republic of Austria, which would be published on April 27, 1945. Within the Declaration of Independence, the Anschluss would be described like this. Instituted by military threat from outside and the terrorism amounting to high treason exercised by the Nazi fascist minority, cunningly wrested from a helpless government, ultimately via military and warlike occupation of the country, imposed on the people of Austria, themselves reduced to helplessness. End quote. From the point of the Anschluss until the end of the war, Austria essentially just functioned as another area of Germany, the first expansion of official German territory since the end of the First World War, but it would not be the last. Thank you everyone for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode as we start a new series on the Third French Republic during the interwar years.